This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, December 30th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Andrew Pack. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's reading comes from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your mouth will be your, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, this is your first time with us. Welcome. If you don't have a Bible, we'll be in Psalm 110 and the words inspired by the Holy Spirit written by King David. So if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table out there. Feel free to get up and grab one of those. Uh, please join me in prayer. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day. You are sovereign Lord over it. We are your people and we belong to you. Do with us what you will today. Lord, help us to see You for who You are, that as we come into a new year, that this year would be full of more joy and worship and freedom in Your Gospel. I pray a blessing over this church. There would be more freedom and joy than we can possibly imagine in Your Gospel this year. And this would be a year that glorifies You. I pray that we wouldn't turn to ourselves too much now. That we wouldn't think about our goals and our ambitions and our desires, but rather, Lord, we would see you for who you are, Jesus. We would see God in the face of Jesus Christ. We understand you're a different kind of king, that you're a different kind of priest, and you're a different kind of judge, and that those realities uh, are disruptive in our self-centered lives. And, And we just pray you would disrupt our little ambitions with your great godly ones, that we'd enjoy you more together as a people. Jesus, we do love you, and we pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, As Russell mentioned, this will be my uh, last sermon as a pastor at Restoration Road Church. So I wanted to, uh, I made it through the first sermon. I'll make it through this one too. Uh, I wanted to thank, you know, I wanted to thank all of you uh, for the way that you have welcomed my family into this family, the way we have felt welcomed here, uh, and the way that you have all ministered to us. And it's been a pleasure to serve King Jesus alongside of all of you. And so thank you uh, we will be, this will be my last Sunday. Uh, next week, I will come on as the pastor of leadership development and church planting at a church called Legacy Church in Bellingham, Washington, uh, where we'll take the accredited uh, MA program we've built and wet it with an on-the-ground church planter pastor training uh, as we get ready to hopefully plant a church ourselves uh, soon thereafter. So you can be praying for us as we uh, head in that direction. Uh, I thought it was appropriate. This is sort of one of those sermons where uh, it's, it's, betu- it's after Christmas, but before a new sermon series starts, so it's a standalone sermon. And so I thought it was both appropriate given that the new year is coming and that this is my last sermon as a pastor of the church, hopefully not my last sermon ever, or my last sermon here. Uh, invite me back, I will come. 
uh, I promise. Um, but I thought it would be important to talk about Jesus. And that might seem sort of obvious given this is an assembly of Christian people, uh, but this time of year, oftentimes we stop and we give you some application, uh, we try and get you on the road straight and set some goals for what the, the new year should look like. Uh, my hope for us and for you is that instead of just setting some goals, we would have a good look at who Jesus is. And we would respond to the person of God in the person, the God, the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that as we look to Jesus, that would change who we are. I want you to think about your finances. I want you to think about your health. I want you to think about your Bible reading. But I don't want you to get your health on straight so you look skinny or feel better or whatever. I want your health to get on straight so that you are stewarding the things that Jesus has given you for his service. I want your finances to be on straight this year, not so that you can just feel good about the credit card being paid down, but because you understand absolutely every penny in your bank account belongs to King Jesus and is there for His glory and for your joy. I want you to open your Bible and get into a Bible reading plan, not because it's the new year and not because it's the thing that you think you should do, and that's what we do on the first of the year. We start reading Genesis, we get to Genesis chapter 15, and we run out of steam, and we stop in the middle, and we say, we'll try that again in 2020. I would urge you, when you get stalled out in your Bible reading plan, just pick it up and keep reading. It's okay. If, if that's the thing that's stopping you from reading it, read it. But my hope is that you wouldn't pray more, read your Bible more, do your life differently because you ought to do those things or you're supposed to do those things, but because you've seen the face of God in the person of Jesus and you've responded to who He is and the freedom He's given you and the life He's given you uh, with great joy. Uh, you know, I'm from Bellingham originally. It's part of the reason why I think God's called us back up there. Um, you have lots of experiences there. Uh, you know, one of those things is sort of uh, uh, people really being into, you know, the, the communist vibe or whatever it might be. And we rework Jesus as sort of proletariat, working class Jesus. That the reason Jesus is awesome is not because he's God incarnate, but because he was a carpenter. He's kind of working class. Or maybe he was a guru. Uh, Woody Guthrie had a song that said Jesus Christ got cru crucified because he came after the bankers. That's kind of a 1930s view on Jesus. That's not really why Jesus was crucified, by the way. Uh, one of the great challenges of uh, missions, foreign missions, particular to uh, you know, uh, religions with multiple gods, is they hear about Jesus and they say, oh, this Jesus, he's nice. We'll just put him up in the pantheon with all the other gods. He looks good up there next to so-and-so. This is great. Uh, the reality is, is that we have a tendency, if we're not careful, or, or we can even fall into this trap ourselves, to rework Jesus however we want him to look. You know, liberal Christianity takes Jesus and takes out anything that might be offensive to a 2018-2019 sensibility, take all the quote-unquote offensive stuff out of Jesus and sort of rework him into, you know, metropolitan urban Jesus who never says anything offensive to anybody ever and just goes along with whatever you think is awesome. Uh, every political party, at least two of the big ones uh, in our country, are pretty guilty of taking Jesus and reworking Christianity for their own political agenda so that you believe that you must vote for their party if you're actually a Christian. And that's what Christians should do. That's sad. But we need to be careful because we can rework Jesus ourselves if we're not careful. If we're not going to God's Word to see who He is. And if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, or if you are a Christian, I would propose that if you were to have an encounter with the divine, if you were to experience the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ, that that should change you. 
that if you're here and you're looking for God or you're looking for the divine or you're looking for spirituality, I would argue that if you have an encounter with the divine, the divine should look less like you and you should be changed by that encounter. Or to put it another way, oftentimes people say, well, I believe in Jesus or Christianity or whatever if this wasn't in the Bible. Or if I could get away with this. Or if I didn't have to deal with this. Then I could believe. Well, what's the problem there? All of a sudden, you're God and He's not. All of a sudden, you're the one dictating to God how He should be and what His Word should say. I would argue that that this is true, that God came into history because God made everything good. Human beings broke it. We sinned against God. We've sinned against people. We've done the things that we shouldn't do. We have not done the things we ought to do. We've chosen not to do the right things in the world. We've rebelled against God. We've hurt people. We've, we've sinned. We've done these things. And God's response to us is to enter into human history, to come in the form of a servant, to save us from ourselves, and to save us from our sin, and to set us free from our love of just garbage and self, and, and, and these things that are just we just know are passing and fading and don't fulfill. And He came into history. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death, death we deserve. And the good news of the gospel is this God has come to save. And I would argue if that is true, and I'll insist that it is, that an encounter with that God should change us to be more like Him rather than us changing Him to be more like us. And so here we come to Psalm 110. Now Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. So the early church, the people who walked around with Jesus, and Jesus Himself actually claims this text for Himself. Psalm 110 is right about here, right in the middle. So Psalm 110, this is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. The early church had an encounter with Christ and looked back into the Old Testament and said, this thing's about Him. And so I would argue we actually need to do what they did. So David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote this text looked forward to the Messiah and who He might be and what He was going to look like. And the early church, having interacted and experienced Christ, looked back from Jesus back into history and looked back into the text and back into the Bible and say, this thing's about Jesus. And my hope for us is that this could act as a kind of Jesus corrective for us as we come around into the new year. And we see three things about Jesus here. One, that Jesus is a different kind of king. Two, that Jesus is a different kind of priest. And three, that Jesus is a different kind of judge. Here we are in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. There's something really special happening here that we kind of can miss. So, in your, if you're in the ESV or most translations, there's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord. Next to the other word, Lord, little case L-O-R-D, okay? Whenever you see capital, here's Bible reading tip. Whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, I won't spell it anymore. When you see that, this is the divine name of God. yod heh vav Yahweh. Now, this is a very special name because it's God's proper name. You have a proper name. People call you whatever, you know, Sammy or Jimmy John or whatever your name is. And I can start pointing at people like Kevin, you know, but you have a name. God has a name. It's not just Lord. He actually has a personal name, Yahweh. Now, if you're doing evangelism to those from a Jewish background, don't use the name. It's really offensive and they shut down. Not only that, but that's actually why this word Lord is here. Because there's a tradition that picks up in this thing called the Septuagint. 
which is a fun thing to say, but you don't need to remember it. But it's the first translation of the Bible out of Hebrew into Greek. Now, why do I even bring this up? Right? You're like, great, nerd, stop nerding. I just want to hear about the text. This is important because by the time this thing's written, several hundred years before Christ, and by that time, they'd already picked up the tradition not to write the name Yahweh, and so in the translation, they put the Greek word for Lord. And so when the early translators uh, got to this, they started doing that too. And so they do capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I spelled it again, but I'll stop. Okay, so Yahweh, Lord, but then they have this funny thing that happens because they do the same thing the English does. The Lord said to my Lord. Okay, that's kind of weird and redundant, but I promise it's special and we'll get there. So this, word, this other word, Lord, the little, little O, R, little O, little O, little R, little D. It gets hard when you start saying it a bunch. That word there means Adonai, which as a Hebrew construct almost always, and I mean almost always, like 99% of the time in the Hebrew Old Testament, is always used for God. So wait a second. Step back to our Bible. Yahweh, God, said to God. God said to God, like the Father speaking to the Son. And all of a sudden you see why this becomes a big deal for the people. But not only that, to drive the point home, it's David who's writing it. Now, we kind of miss this thing about having a king, right? We don't do kings. We're, we're Americans. We throw their tea in the water and throw, you know, do whatever. That's what we do with kings in America, right? We have tea parties. By tea party, we mean break a bunch of stuff and throw it in the water. Take that, King George. Boom, right? That's how we do with kings. So we have to be careful because that is our tendency. So we, we kind of miss the, the power of an idea like a king. You know, you might watch PBS and you know about Queen Elizabeth, but you know, then you watch C-SPAN, the British version of C-SPAN, you see all the parliament yelling at each other. So you're like, well, she's clearly not sovereign over absolutely everything because there's a bunch of people in parliament yelling at each other. I don't even know what they're doing. It's very entertaining TV, by the way, but I digress. King David is a sovereign king. What he says goes, right? What he says goes. Not only that, he's, he's King David. Now, this is written, you know, approximately a thousand years before the birth of Christ, give or take, circa kind of thing. So, David is this king, but he's not just a king. Because after David, everything goes south. Everything, the ki- kingdoms divide, things go horrible, he's got a bunch of descendants, they pretty much ruin everything, everybody ends up in exile, it's chaos. But David had the united kingdom. And it worked out. And so in the mind of, of uh, God's people, David is this, this sort of king par excellence. That's why we hear about Jesus being the son of David. This one that's going to be better than David who comes in. And so when you have this guy who's the sovereign king, what he says goes, he bows the knee to no one. All of a sudden we have him saying, the Lord said to my Lord, King David has one Lord, and it's God. So the Lord says to my Lord, God says to God, the Father says to the Son, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is what the early church clearly saw that Jesus has done. Here's the good news of the Gospel. Jesus enters into history as the Messiah, as this one who is promised, 
who comes and crushes Satan and crushes death and dies on the cross to set us free, to make us his own, and he's seated, ruling and reigning, because he said at the cross, it is finished. It is paid in full. You can't pay Jesus back for your salvation. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, the the good news we offer you is not that you come and get your life cleaned up so that God might love you. We offer you the good news of a God who loved us first while we were still enemies, who died on the cross to save sinners and is currently seated in heaven awaiting his return because it's finished. Everything that's needed to happen for you to know God is already done. Everything that's needed for you to be right with God if you're not a Christian is done in Jesus. Turn to him and believe. And brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you need to remember the good news of the gospel is that you are forgiven people. You're not half forgiven people. You're not sort of forgiven people. You're not people who are forgiven when you can forgive yourself people. You are pronounced forgiven by the God of the universe people. Amen? This is good news, by the way. I don't know if you know this. This is good news. The Lord sends forth from Zion, which is the name of Jerusalem, um, you know, and, and even the heavenly Jerusalem, but the center of God's rule and reign, uh, both in the Old Testament and in the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Scepter, who cares, right? Again, this is calling back to another thing, which is Psalm 2, where the scepter and the rod is talked about where Jesus is called the Son. Today you are my son, I've, you are my son and today I've begotten you. Another thing that the early church hearkened back to. He says, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power or on the day that you lead them into battle. It's probably a better way to render that. But on the day of your power, in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. There's a lot of really amazing stuff happening here that would have been really, 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 really good news to people when they realized Jesus is the Messiah who's come to do these things. And I pray and I hope as we go through this text, this is, if it's not already, that this becomes really, really good news to you because what we're going to see here is that Jesus is a different kind of king. So, you know, you imagine the people of God receiving this news in the first century. Things have gone south. Uh, the Romans have invaded. Uh, people are getting beat up. People are getting killed. People's stuff's getting taken. Life is very hard. Life is very difficult. And then there's supposed to be this promise of this one who's going to come rule in the midst of those enemies. And Jesus shows up. And he doesn't actually kick out the Romans. And some people were very, very disappointed, including Judas Iscariot and others in that reality. If you're the Messiah, why don't you kick out the Romans? They miss that Jesus is a better kind of king. He's a conquering king who's come to do more than just kick out the Romans. It's not less than, it's more than, uh, but it came in a way that they did not expect. If you'd go with me to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Pardon me, verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. This is the kind of king. So they were looking forward to this king, but it wasn't until they come that they saw him with the clarity of Philippians 2 on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, awaiting His return. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. As Christian people, this is who we already are. We are people who are indwelt by the Spirit. We're people who are given new hearts and new lives and eternal lives that start now. We're not, we're not waiting for our life to start. It gets better as God rolls out His program, but our life in Christ, our joy in Christ starts now. You're already a new kind of person. Busy taking off the old man and putting on the new, to use Paul's language elsewhere. 
We're still that sinner that has to go. We have still have that sinner that has to go, but who you are fundamentally is not sinner. Who you are fundamentally is child of God. And as child of God, we take off the old man and we put on the new. Okay. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, listen, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. It's a different kind of king. Kings are scary because kings get what they want. right? I'm Danish. Our queen is Margrethe II. She's in charge of a peninsula and 144 islands. She has an awesome navy and a parliament she has to answer to. She's not the kind of person that things are the way they are. But you know what she doesn't do? A lot. A lot of other people do a lot of other things for her and she's not even one of the old-timey King George kind of kings. So imagine that. And this is the king. And we're going to hear about bowing and whatnot here in a second. Who though he was in the form of God, not just in the form of a king, he's God. He's God. Did not count equality a thing to be, and the literal rendering of this would be, taken by force. Taken by force. So before the foundations of the earth, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God in three persons, creates a plan to undo, frankly, what you broke, what I broke, to undo all the things you jacked up and made wrong, and everybody else for that matter. And as we'll see, he's a just judge later. The plan was so that you could be dealt with rebels against the king, the king would come and die a rebel's death so the rebels who repent and believe could be called king's kids. This doesn't make any sense. This blows people's mind. This should freak you out when you actually think about the things we are talking about. So this means before the foundations of the earth, looking at your sin and all the ways you'd sin against God, the Trinity, God, puts together a plan that the Son would come and die the rebel's death you deserve. And nowhere in there did the Son say, why doesn't the Holy Spirit do it? Nowhere in there does He say, but don't you know that I'm God? I'm not to die a rebel's death. Let them die the rebel's death. You can take it by force. This is the perfect plan hatched by a perfect, holy, loving, just, right, and righteous God to save you and me from ourselves and from our sin. And how does the plan go down? He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. This is a different kind of king. This is the servant king. This is the king who came for you while you were still an enemy. This is good news. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him This is the servant king. He has exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He doesn't just have sovereign rights over the universe as God. He also has sovereign rights over the universe as Messiah. And the Father has exalted him and said, Glorious is Jesus. Worship him. Worship him. So 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. At His return, those of us who eagerly await Him bow to King Jesus and enjoy Him and rejoice in Him and have freedom in Him and say He's finally here. It's happened. We're free. It's all finished now. It's come to fruition. And those who have rejected Him will also bow the knee and say that I'm wrong. And you'll have to deal with that forever and ever. All paths lead up to the same place, and that's the white throne of judgment of God. Where we either hear, well done and good and faithful servant, or we hear about all the times that you had the opportunity to turn all the kindness God extended to you. God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. Have you ever stopped and wondered why things work out like a Bruce Springsteen song? Sometimes the poor get poorer and the rich get richer and the good they die young and the you know it, it doesn't feel like it should be that way. It, it, it doesn't feel like the, the evil should grow old and more powerful. The time is coming. We either repent and turn to Christ or Christ will deal with us. He is a just God. But listen to the God that is doing this. He's a different kind of king. He's the king that's come to die for you and for me to be free. Go back with me to Psalm 110. On the day of your power in holy garments, because if you are a Christian, you are washed clean. I know it doesn't always feel that way. Not every day feels like a washed clean day. But the Lord has pronounced you forgiven. He's pronounced you clean. He's pronounced you saved. And that comes to fruition at His return. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and not changed His mind. You are the priest. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Great, that's really obvious, right? Melchizedek, and we all know about him, priests and stuff. Not necessarily, right? So, uh, depending on your background, uh, you know, if you have a Catholic background, you have you know an image of the priest as sort of your mediator between yourself and God, which is not true. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Period. Period. Anything else is a heresy. Period. Uh, you might come from a, a, different, a different religious background where there's priests. I don't know. You, know, there's, there's lots of, you, might, bring, you might just bring in the choose-your-own-adventure book thing from when you were 12 or uh, you know, the cave in Legends of Zelda. You might have images of priests that, and maybe you don't know anything about priests, but I would argue that this is a different kind of priest and even a different kind of priest, specifically different than the Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant priest. So it says here, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Go with me to Hebrews, which is on the other end of Paul's letters. It's right about there. We're in chapter 7. We'll start in verse 22. He's just actually quoted that verse several times uh, in the language above. Spends a lot of time with Melchizedek. Melchizedek's interesting because he only appears three times in the Bible. He's in Genesis 14. He's here in Psalm 110. And he's in Hebrews. Okay? Now, his appearance in Genesis 14 is fascinating to say the least uh here's the short of it abram comes and gets in a fight with some dudes and there's some bad dudes but he's got some good dudes who are bad dudes and they win abram wins the bad kings lose and his wacky nephew lot gets set free because abraham's always busy trying to help his knucklehead nephew lot who does knuckleheadery knuckleheadery knucklehead 
Yeah, he's a knucklehead. He's a knucklehead. And Abram saves him again in Genesis 14. And after the kings are defeated, these kings, these bad dudes are defeated, all of a sudden this priest shows up named Melchizedek, who's called a priest of the God Most High, and he breaks out some bread and some wine. Maybe I'll say it right here. He breaks out some bread and some wine. Very reminiscent and a very strong echo of what we do still to this day 2,000 years after the Lord instituted it. Not only that, but then Abram gives a tenth of everything he has to Melchizedek. This is an acknowledgement that Melchizedek uh, is a priest of God Most High. It's kind of an interesting interaction because after this, Melchizedek just disappears and we don't hear about him again until we get to Psalm 110. And then we don't hear about him again until we get to Hebrews. Now, for what I'm about to read to make sense, you could either go home and read the first 78% of your Bible called the Old Testament, or I could give you the really short version. I'm begging you, please, like on a side, like asterisk note, please read the first 78% of your Bible. It is all about Jesus and what God's doing in the world. And I know sometimes Leviticus is hard because you're thinking, so can I wear, so wait, I can't mix, wear mixed fabrics? So can I wear a poly cotton blend? What do I do with shellfish? For us on this side in the New Covenant, that's not what it's about anymore. What, what the Old Covenant was about was a people who were to serve as a lighthouse for the God of the universe. And in His grace and mercy, He gives them roughly 613 commands to follow. And those commands were designed so that the world around would see this people and know they belong to Yahweh. Now, He also did something really, really gracious. He set up the sacrificial system. And in that sacrificial system, when you screwed up and you disobeyed, instead of you having to pay the price for that, you were able to atone for your sins by having some kind of critter pay the price in your place. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay. And God in His graciousness took the critter in place of you if you were living on that side of the cross. Or really that side of the Christ event. If we're getting technical. So that's a grace. Now, but here's the problem that Hebrews is going to point out with that grace. Even with that grace. So you know what you're not supposed to do. Right? Have you ever done anything you've known you're not supposed to do? We have this thing hardwired into us called sin that when we walk by the sign of the park and it says, please stay off the grass, you're like, uh-huh, I'll show you. Give me a sign, I'll walk on your grass. Right? Here's the problem with the Old Covenant. You're Now, let's be honest. Judea, not a lot of chariots. But anyways, you're in your chariot. You're driving in your chariot with your kids in the back of your chariot. They don't have minivan chariots. I just don't want to call you out. Rhonda, spoiled, where is she? She spoiled my illustration. So you're in your chariot, you're driving to the temple to go worship the God of the universe, and your kids in the back are making noise, and you stop, hey, you, in the back, be quiet! The chariot. You sin against your kids, and you realize you must repent. So you go to the temple, and you go to the temple, and you bring your turtle doves or whatever, and then you walk out of the temple, and somebody rides their chariot over your robe, and you flash them the universal sign of disapproval. And back into the temple you go. 
The law made nothing perfect, is what Hebrews tells us. Or, or it doesn't have its completion. The law made nothing complete because that's not complete because that's not how people are supposed to live. Now, in the good news of the Gospel, we are forgiven for our sins, which gives us a new power. And that's the acceptance of the Gospel that when you are in your minivan or in your SUV, Rhonda, and your kids are being too rowdy, and you don't quietly turn down the music and say, Excuse me, progeny, if you would please be quiet back there. I'm trying to drive. But rather you maybe raise your voice. And then when you get here, you have the opportunity to look your child in the eye and say, I raised my voice there. Please forgive me. And then you have the opportunity to say, because I need Jesus and so do you. Jesus has forgiven me and I need to ask for your forgiveness. Because as parents, this is what we need to model for our children. We need to model the gospel for your children so that when your children you know, do other things to other children or your other children, you get down on their level and you can say, you need Jesus and so do I. Jesus loves you. Jesus has forgiven you. This is the good news, the gospel. You're free but you also need to go tell so-and-so that you're sorry for doing whatever, whatever. But you need to know you're loved and forgiven. You're not doing this because you're not doing this because it's just what you're supposed to do as Christians. You're not doing this just because you're raising kids. Friends, you're doing this because you're raising disciples of Jesus Christ. You're raising grown-ups. You're raising women and men to love Jesus, to be the people, who ask for God's forgiveness, who Ask for forgiveness for other people. Now listen why this is able to happen. Uh, verse 22 back in Hebrews. This makes Jesus, what we've heard about Him, is the, this priest in the order of Melchizedek. So we're in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. This makes Jesus uh, the grantor of a better covenant. Well, what does He mean there? The old covenant was this. I will be your God and you will be My people if you walk in My ways. The new covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will cause you to walk in my ways. I will send you the Holy Spirit. I will give you a new heart. I will forgive you for your sins. I will be your atoning sacrifice so you can live your life in freedom so all of a sudden you're not asking for forgiveness so you can be accepted by others. You're asking for forgiveness because you have been accepted by God. It doesn't matter if they say I forgive you back. If you sinned against people, look them in the eye and say I'm sorry. I'm sorry, please forgive me. The former priests were many in number because that whole thing with the chariots. But they were prevented by death from continuing in office because people keep coming in to keep making the sacrifices because people keep sinning because the law made nothing perfect. But he, that's Jesus, holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. His sacrifice is sufficient. He's not just the priest. He's the atoning sacrifice that makes you right with God. I used to hear people say, atonement, at one mint, you get right with God. And I would think to myself, that is a stupid sermon illustration. Please don't say that anymore. And then I actually read my uh, history and it turns out the word atonement gets invented by an early English translator of the Bible, John Wycliffe. Not Wycliffe John. John Wycliffe. Because there's no English word to talk about what Jesus did. What, what this really means. The sacrifice and His blood 
makes you at one with God. It ends the war and the fight you picked with God. God ends it by dying in your place and washing you clean from your sins. And it continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost. Did you hear that? You cannot out-sin the cross of Jesus Christ. You have no sin so large that His blood doesn't make you white as snow. If you're in here today and you're not a Christian, our message is not clean up your life and start looking like us. Our message is we are people who have been pulled out of the muck by Jesus Christ and washed clean by His blood and it wasn't our doing, it was His. And there's room here for you under the cross of Jesus Christ. There's freedom here for you knowing God who made you to know Him and to enjoy Him and to love Him. To the utmost. There's no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. When he shouts out, it is finished. Literally, it is paid in full. Your price has been paid. That doesn't mean we're not being sanctified. That doesn't mean we're not being changed. That doesn't mean we're not repenting. That doesn't mean we're not taking off the old man and putting on the new. That doesn't mean we're not laying aside whatever gets in our way of our pursuit of Jesus. That doesn't mean that we don't do everything we can to get everything else out of the way to get to Jesus. But we do that empowered by the Spirit and forgiven by the Son. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a Son, capital S, Son, who has been made perfect forever. He is a different kind of priest. Go back with me to Psalm 110, please. Verse 5 says this. The Lord is at your right hand. Very Hebrew image. Uh, you know, of, of, uh, this is to the Father, about the Son. He's sitting at His right hand. That's a place of honor, but He's also completed the work. But listen, He will shatter the kings on the day of His wrath. We don't like the word wrath. Kind of bums us out. Makes us feel uncomfortable. And uh, I think 10 years ago especially, it was like, oh, you Christians, you're all into wrath. I think at this point in time, we're at, a, we're at a place where when we feel like someone has done something wrong, they should really pay for it. I don't think wrath is as big of a deal 10 years later. Uh, we're, we're actually into it. We think people, if someone's done something wrong, they should pay for it. They should lose their career. They should lose their job. They should lose their house. Uh, cake bakers in Oregon didn't want to make a cake and they got fined $140,000. That is punitive and that is intended to be wrath on that family so that they will make a cake or have their lives destroyed. Right? That's wrath. Right? Thank you, the state of Oregon. Right? That's wrath. Wrath is the business end of God's justice. But we have a different kind of judge, as we'll see. Because we hear this. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs on the day uh, over the wide earth. Now, again, we're, when you're receiving this and is a first century Palestinian and the Romans are kicking you around and, and killing your friends and taking your stuff and taking your food and being horrible to you, the idea that God's Messiah would come and liberate you is really good news. 
And I would argue Jesus is going to come in that Philippians 2 kind of liberation and He's going to liberate the whole world. And it's going to be amazing. But, between here and there, this is the amazing thing about our judge. He's not just the judge. Go with me to Romans chapter 3. We'll start in verse 21. Because here's, here's the thing about justice and the thing about wrath. We, we don't really consider something, someone a just judge who just sweeps things under the rug. We don't consider to be righteous. Right? People have done wrong and someone needs to pay. Yes? When someone wrongs you, you want them to pay. Right? It's only in the Gospel do we do crazy things like turn the other cheek. It's only in the Gospel when someone hurts us and we understand God's got it. Either Jesus is going to pay the price for that or they're going to have to and I'm going to love my enemies and I'm going to pray for those who persecute you. This is radical. This is disruptive. That when someone hurts you, your response is to pray for them. Amazing. Doesn't make any sense apart from the cross. So we're here in Romans 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Apart from those 613 uh, things that had to get followed. Although the law, capital L, so that's the Torah, five books of Moses, and the prophets, the Navium, the writings of the prophets, bear witness to it. So why do I read my Old Testament? Why do I read that first 78% of my Bible? Why do I still have it, love it, cherish it? And why am I preaching from it this morning? Well, the whole thing's about Jesus. Luke 24 tells us so. Greatest Bible study in history. Jesus opens all that stuff up and says, look, this is how it's all about me. It's amazing. That's why we're here. Saying they testified about Him. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. You believe in your heart. You confess with your lips. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Now here's our problem. Especially in our own theological tradition as a church. In the kind of Reformed-ish, Baptist-ish kind of tradition. Sometimes people love to quote the first half of this verse all by its lonesome. Verse Chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Absolutely true. No discrimination here. Absolutely everyone is damnable in front of God because they have fallen short of His glory. Absolutely everybody. No one gets a free ticket to heaven. No one has served enough. No one has done enough. No one can get up to God. Period. But then we say, all right, let's sing. Not helpful. It's true. We, we get confused with total depravity and utter depravity. Total depravity says, apart from Christ, I can't please God. Apart from Christ, I've fallen short of His glory. Utter depravity says, I fall short of God's glory, period. Did you catch the distinction there? Apart from Christ, I am a sinner who cannot glorify God. I cannot please God. I cannot... Do anything that makes God happy. Because I either rebel, I do right things for the wrong reasons, or there's a bunch of good things I choose not to do. Okay? So, but what's the problem with that? The Bible. Wait, no. Wait, that's the apart from Christ. This is the one where it's just the period. So, but here's the good news in Christ. When you belong to Jesus, you're His kid. Right? You're King's kids. 
You're given the Holy Spirit. You're given a new heart. You're given a new life. You're given the ability to enjoy Him and please Him and make much of His name and glorify Him with everything you do. The problem is that we put the wrong period there and we say, you can't make God happy, period. Let's sing. Because we miss the rest of the stuff. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you're in the ESV, there's a comma. And if I could talk to the guys who put in the verses who are not the writers of the Bible, I would have not made this verse 24. I would have made this the rest of verse 23. Unfortunately, I do not have a time machine at my disposal, nor do I know how to speak Latin, which I would need to speak to them about making that verse 23. And they'd probably burn me at the stake for being a something or other coming for the future and all. Verse 24 so you got to read it in one sentence. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. So you have sinned against God and He's extended His grace to you because He's a different kind of king who came and died a rebel's death. He's extended grace to you because He's a different kind of priest who came as a sacrifice in your place for your sin. Not only that, He's a different kind of judge who looks at the judgment you deserve and says, I'll take that on my shoulders. He looks at you and what you've done and said, I will drink the cup of wrath so they don't have to. I will die so Restoration Road Church in 2018 doesn't have to. That is a different kind of judge. I've never heard of a judge saying, you get life. Take me away. You get to go free. You deserve to go to jail for the rest of your life. Take me instead. Never heard of it. Why? Because it's never, ever, ever, ever happened. Ever. I don't even have a source to cite for that. I just know that hasn't happened because that's not the way the world works. Again, the gospel messes with us when we actually pay attention to what's happening here. And are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's a word we don't use often, but the connotation here is that it deals with wrath. There's a business end of God's justice with our name on it that Jesus takes by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier for all who have faith in Jesus Christ. Somebody's got to pay. And if you love Jesus, it turns out He paid so you don't have to. Somebody's got to pay. He's a different kind of judge. So my hope is as we turn to this and we look towards the new year, rather than just saying, hey, here are my goals and here's what I'd like to change. Have goals. Change things. It's good. We all need some change. I'm not saying don't do that. But I'm saying what we should actually do is fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and the goodness of his gospel and the things he's done and who we are because of him. And from there, Let's organize everything else around the disruptive power of the gospel in our lives. That's what brings us joy. That's what brings Him glory. He is a God who has set us free to enjoy Him with the totality of our lives. So let's turn from the, the small things and the petty things to the eternal things, the cosmic things of Christ. And if you are in here today and you have found yourself saying, well, I would believe in Jesus if... dot dot dot. What I really mean is He looks more like me. I would propose that the God of the Bible is way better than whatever you've imagined. 
Your cleaned up sort of politically correct Jesus is one thing. I think the God who has come to save sinners from death to life is a grander, greater, huger, more glorious thing. You can know this God. You can be at one with this God. Turn from your sin and turn to Him and receive this gift of grace. It is a free offer. It's yours today. It's not about getting your life cleaned up. It's about turning to Him. And if you're in here today and you're looking at your life and saying, you know what? My life's not organized around that God or that Jesus. That, that's not reverberating into my life. The, the reality of the Gospel isn't disrupting my decisions or what I do with my money or, or any other part of my life. What needs to change today to live in response to this good news? And if you're in here today and, and your life is orbiting around Jesus more than it's not, it's a really great time to instead of just think about what you could tweak in your own life to look around this church and say, who can I serve? How can I give of myself to help other people love Jesus more? How can I give of myself so people in Snohomish or India or Japan or wherever can know Jesus more? Let's pray.